I'm Christian F. Nunes, and welcome to Feminism Now, a new podcast featuring leaders and activists who are on the front lines of the fight for constitutional equality, economic justice, and reproductive rights. We'll also be talking to artists, authors, and other creatives about their work and their thoughts on modern-day feminism. The goal is to educate, empower, and have a little fun on the way, too. If you like what you hear, please go to now.org, now.org, and read up on our core issues and our approach to advancing women's equality, and just come on and get involved. Our guest today is Alyssa Milano. Where to begin about Alyssa? From starring roles in Who's the Boss, Charmed, and Melrose Place to the front lines of the Me Too movement. Alyssa is an actor, an activist, an author, and a UNICEF ambassador. She's also the host of a fantastic podcast, Sorry Not Sorry, where she tackles the big issues of the day while also highlighting regular people who are doing amazing work around the country. I can also tell you that Alyssa is just a nice, approachable human being, and I'm so glad you agreed to come on the show. Hi, Alyssa. How are you doing? Hi, I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here to speak with you. Absolutely. So we kind of were having a little backdoor conversation before we got started about just everything that's happening right now and everything that's going on. And you're so involved in so many different things, you know, with your own podcast, your book, um, the movement work you're doing. How are you seeming to manage everything? How are you staying on top of, you know, all of these different aspects of your life? And why is it so important that you're involved in all these different projects and aspects and movements? I don't know if I'm equipped to actually say that I'm managing. (laughs) I can tell you that I have a very hard time saying no, especially when it has to do with helping people or raising awareness or taking trips on behalf of UNICEF or whatever it is. And I can also tell you the other thing that has helped me personally is that I have given up the quest to try to find balance. Mm. <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing as balance. I think what has worked for me is a constant reminder to be present and in the moment and do the best I can be, uh, do the best I can do with what is right in front of me in that moment. I think that's a fantastic answer, um, Alyssa, because I think oftentimes we always are searching for this sense of like balance and we hear about self-care and giving to ourselves. And and sometimes I think people feel like they fail in this area, right? They feel like they fail on giving self-care and balance because we have this notion of what we think that looks like and it's supposed to look like. But what you just described is what we call mindfulness, And that is being present and being right in that moment and acknowledging and accepting what you have to give and being okay giving what you have to give. Yes, trying to walk through life with as much grace as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Well, here, here to grace for ourselves because we all need it. (laughs) Absolutely. We really do. And it's, I don't think it comes naturally all the time. 
Well, let's talk about some of these roles and then how you even are able to give grace to yourself, but also to other people. One of the things you mentioned before is that you use your platform as a celebrity to amplify the importance of issues in the voices of other people. Can you tell us more about that and how do you use your platform to do that? I would say the moment that I knew that this was going to be a big part of my life. I was very young. I was 15 years old. And I became friends with a boy named Ryan White, who, uh, for Mm. anyone who isn't Mm -hmm. as old as I am, um, Ryan White was a young teenager who um, had HIV Mm. and his school basically kicked him out because they, uh, you know, this was a time when HIV was stigmatized and the government was, of course, running on fear uh, and fear mongering. And the school superintendent made it known that he had HIV and that he could potentially give it to other students, which Mm -hmm. now, of course, we know you can't get HIV from casual contact. And of course, Ryan knew that at the time. But that was not the narrative at the time. And so he and I became friends. And um, through that friendship and how it evolved, he then asked me if I would kiss him on TV to prove that you can't get HIV from casual contact. And so I did. I went on the Phil Donahue show. That's how long ago this was. And I kissed Ryan White on television and um, realized from that experience a few things. One is that my celebrity only really had meaning or purpose uh, if I was using my voice to affect positive change, or as I call it now, sharing the mic with people who are on the front lines doing the really gut-wrenching, soulful work uh, that is so personal, but also that I was not going to be able to please everyone and that there were going to be, um, you know, we call them now trolls. But at that time, when there was no social media, I got lots of hate mail and death threats Mm-mm. and nobody invited me to the prom uh, because they they said that I had HIV. Mm. And so I never knew a time with my activism where some form of uh, some form of trolling did not exist but also did not really know my celebrity without some form of activism um so i think that that was the, the defining moment in my life where i knew that this was going to be part of my life well first of all thank you for sharing that story, because I tell you, I never knew that story hmm. uh, about, and I'm, you know, I'm a Melissa Milano fan. Hmm. <laughs> right I um, still get, I have to tell you, I still get choked up telling that story. I, yeah. Not I, because he just meant so much to my life. So every time I repeat it, I feel like I'm giving him a, a hat tip, right? Just tip of the hat to say, uh, thank you for being courageous, Ryan. Thank you for changing the world. And I think citizen activists are the people who change the world. Absolutely. And and just to even have, like, hearing the story, I have so much empathy for the place that he was at at that period of time in this world where there was so much stigma and there was so much fear and the bravery he had to have had and the bravery you have had to have had to be an activist in that place as well. 
And that just touches me because there is still so much that goes along with that to this day in 2023 that we hear. And there's so much disinformation is still carried along about HIV and AIDS. And, you know, and right now what we're also seeing is there's a new error of disinformation and misinformation is coming out intentionally trying to disempower and suppress and oppress the LGBTQIA um, community. And so it just kind of touches my heart to hear that story and, and how great of a friend you were. Our work is never over. And I think that is the most important thing that I've learned through this work mm -hmm. is to not be attached to the outcome, but to try to make as much impact as possible while you're doing the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think about Alice Paul introducing the Equal Rights Amendment, and she came so close to seeing it published in the Constitution in her lifetime, but she didn't get to see it. That doesn't mean she didn't firmly change the way in which we talk about equality mm -hmm. um, and gender equality. And so I've sort of looked at that and I've been like, you know what? It's not because I think any activist or anyone who does this movement work will tell you there's not a lot of wins. Right. Mm. So you can't be dependent on the outcome mm -hmm. because if that's what you're looking for for, for fulfillment, you're not, you're not, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what fulfills you along the way about this work that is sustainable, right. sustainable, where mm -hmm. you don't burn out. And I know you know this better than anyone. We, I mean, um, but it's something we all teach ourselves. And to me, I have to focus on being purpose-driven, not outcome-driven. And that's what I remind myself. It's like, and process-driven. And pro yes, very much process-driven. I'm huge in process. Uh, yeah. Because those are the things that really kind of keep us focused on, like, like you said, not always expecting a win but knowing what our purpose is and the process we're going to take to try to get there right. Um, and it has to be intense and it has to be authentic. For sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. And that's where I find our work very contradictory with the lawmakers mm -hmm. that we have to deal with daily in order to get shit done. Mm -hmm. And there are many that do function with a certain a certain level of integrity, but there are some that have lost that along the way. And I think that that's what is so frustrating, mm -hmm. you know, but part of any movement. So we just got to, we have to keep progressing and moving forward. That's all we can do. Right. I think we're in a really exciting time for some issues. I think we're in a really weird time for some issues. <laughs> so uh, climate, I think that we're on the precipice of not being able to ignore that something needs to be done and something needs to be done quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm always excited and challenged by the feminist movement and, and women's equality and uh, bodily autonomy and, and all of the things that, that we need to accomplish. Mm. So I think this mm. is a very interesting time to be alive. Clearly so many issues, all of the issues are at stake. You know, and since I've taken over, um, been leading now, I should say leading now the last three years, uh, I, went, I don't say taken over, but leading. 
Um, that's kind of where I've been guiding our strategy is making sure that we're doing it from an approach of an intersectional feminist approach, because you cannot truly address one issue without addressing the other. So it's better to look at an intersectional approach than try to do siloed equality work, which is really truly just another form of like injustice, right? Like for saying, oh, well, my silo is better than your silo. Then really you're saying I... I want injustice in some ways for you and not for me. So we can't really do that. We have to make sure that we are looking at it from a holistic uh, intersectional approach or acknowledging everybody's struggle and the need for everybody's just. I have a theory about that, about the silo in our, in our silos in our movement. I think because all of every organization is competing for the same donor dollars mm -hmm. that it becomes a my way is the best way mm -hmm. because that's what people fund on. Mm -hmm. And intersectionality of all of these issues and where they intersect specifically with feminism is, it's a hard concept to fully grasp. Mm -hmm. Also, it's constantly shifting. So as soon as you figure out or as soon as you think you have a handle on it, I think it shifts. So you have to be able to assimilate what you've learned mm -hmm. with where the movement is going and be flexible. And so I think the, the idea that feminism is this uh, collective empowerment, mm -hmm. right? And you think about that, but obviously for women of color, that collective can't happen without the liberation mm -hmm of all forms of oppression. Right. And this is why no modern society has been able to achieve true feminism. Right. Because there is this hierarchy of oppression that happens. Mm -hmm. And so it's very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. And I just feel blessed that I'm able to learn from some of the most incredible humanitarians, philanthropists, activists, politicians, people like you Thank who you. Uh, have taught me what it means in this moment right now to be a feminist, yeah. to be an activist, to be a humanist. A humanist, really, right? That's what we're talking about. And that's really what I think part of that liberation happens with feminism and being able to truly like protect and, and have a safe space for women and girls. It's like, elevating their voices and our narratives in this process and this work that we're doing. It is making sure that we're fully representing them in our policy and our legislation, making sure that we're- And globally. Globally. And I, and I mean this from globally. I, a domestic, global, it's all the same to me. And we should just be global feminism, right? It shouldn't even be like domestic or- It should be global feminism, Can right? Can we just talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Please, we have to. I mean, two thirds of- all uh, illiterate people on our planet, two thirds mm -hmm. of them are women. Mm -hmm. Why is that? It is because of the oppression. Right. It is because of the patriarchy. It is because women being treated like second class like citizens, property. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So, mm -hmm. like, we can't have this conversation about feminism without including the women and girls throughout the world. Absolutely, absolutely. I get frustrated because. I look at, you know, we hear so much about bodily autonomy, right? And mm -hmm. obviously that is the true liberation, but we can't talk about 
bodily autonomy without we, we focus on abortion. But to me, we can't talk about bodily autonomy without including female gen, gender mutilation. Absolutely. This is such a great opportunity for, you know, as we're being having our bodily autonomy taken away to talk about there is still horrible things happening throughout the world. I mean, I just, I went to Egypt last September and, and we went to remote villages and there were these circle groups where girls were just talking about like how they could help each other so that they didn't get mutilated. Mm -hmm. And it's like, as we would talk about a sexual harassment in the workplace conversation, mm -hmm. young girls are talking about how to avoid female genital mutilation. And so I think all of this, all of these things, intersectionality. But when you start thinking outside of just our politics and our country, what does it mean for women exactly. everywhere? Exactly. And that is, that is feminism to me. That Absolutely. is equality. I truly agree with you on that. It's interesting to me that we have been in the United States fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment, right? for women for over 100 years. But there are other countries that rank higher and have equal rights protections for women, United we States. The, <laughs> we are the only industrialized country in the world that does not include specific right. protections for women. Mm -hmm. We are the only country who has established a constitution um, in the industrialized nation or amended constitution mm -hmm. that has not included specifically women. It is, you know, been a century since the ERA was first introduced into Congress. Obviously, for a constitutional amendment to pass, 38 states ha have to ratify it. Happened. Um, <laughs> which happened. Right. Unfortunately, yeah. the archivist has failed to comply with the federal law requiring publication mm -hmm. based specifically on an opinion letter published by Trump's Department of Justice. And then in January of, of this last year, so almost a year ago, um, a group of bipartisan lawmakers introduced a bill to affirm the validity of the ERA and remove this arbitrary deadline, which, by the way, no other amendment has had to face this arbitrary deadline. And so here we are. Also, remember when I was talking about how we have to adapt and shift mm -hmm. and be ERA is a perfect example of this, because when Alice Paul wrote the Equal Rights Amendment and also the movement basically through up until I would say up until Trump, we were not as as ERA activists, not to mention trans rights and we were not to mention abortion rights. Right. The reason why was because it was very important that it was going to be a bipartisan effort. Mm -hmm. And trans rights and abortion rights are two issues where, by the way, made up issues that the Republican Party can feign uprage or outrage over. So adaption, right? We, we are now seeing so much violence against trans people. We are now seeing 
the our rights being stripped away daily for the first time in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And as ERA advocates, we've had to say, no, we are, if we are fighting for this, we are not going back. So we are fighting for LGBTQ plus rights. We are fighting for abortion rights. And I think the reason why the ERA is so important right now is because it really can make concrete changes in our our goal to achieve equality and reach a c- collective empowerment. Absolutely. And, and also eliminate some of those loopholes that we see when it comes to protecting women with sexual harassment and domestic violence clause and, you equal know, pay for equal, equal work. pay. Yeah. I mean, so many things that they have used to say, well, you know, technically we, you know, there's nothing really that says we have to do this. They can no longer use those as their scapegoats when we have this fully enshrined into our constitution. And I think that the section two of the Equal Rights Amendment is something that isn't discussed enough, which is that it gives Congress and lawmakers uh, the power to create laws based specifically on sex discrimination or Mm -hmm. gender discrimination. Yep. Really important, you know, and every single time, like clockwork, and I would encourage your listeners to go check it out. (laughs) You have the 14th Amendment. Right. And my thing is always like, well, yes, the lawyers have figured out a way to manipulate the 14th Amendment to include women, but women didn't have the right to vote until the 19th Amendment. So clearly the 14th Amendment wasn't covering women. And not all women, right? And not if all it, women. Well, and that's another thing. Let's not, let's go there for a second. Is, is not all women. Not, I mean, that's, we, we can go into the suffragettes movement, not mm-hmm. fighting for black women voters as well. That came later, shamefully. But these fuckers are like 14th Amendment. It's like, assholes, we didn't get the right to vote. Women, white women didn't get the right to vote till the 19th Amendment. Right. And that was five amendments after the 14th Amendment. So you're telling me the 14th Amendment was for for women? Give me a fucking break. Right. Oh, I get so riled up. (laughs) But I mean, it it, it, it does. I mean, because it's like, what else? What is going to be your continued reason for why you're trying to hold this back? You know, besides power and control. That's the only reason. That's it. Power and control. That's it. And this is where we're seeing where we're at right now is that we're st- women are still fighting to, and this is where I think too, when I think about bodily autonomy, it's not just about abortion access. It's like full whole Medical. bodily autonomy from writing, making my own decisions about my future, my career, yes. my body, my family, my lifestyle, yes. my everything. It is fully having full ownership, free agency of who I am as a being, as a person. And that's what we're really fighting yes. for. And people really have to understand that. It's it's so much deeper than just abortion access. It's also being able to go into a place and get the same access to treatment no matter where I go, no matter what race I am, no matter my disability status, no matter right. what my gender, my 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 or you know, my gender identity is and make it's about same equivalent equity access. 
being able to have that, that is part of this bodily autonomy that women are still exactly right. in, in non-conforming, you know, gender non-conforming people are still struggling for. And this is why we need this. And until we get this, we're going to keep seeing people die. We're going to keep yep. seeing people suffer. We're going to keep seeing people fighting for, you know, to protect themselves. And so it, we have a long way to go. But like we said, we, we have to remember where our purpose is. So it's being in control of reproductive health. It mm-hmm. is it is every newborn having access mm-hmm. to neonatal care. It is every pregnant woman receiving mm-hmm. patient-centered care, beginning also at the first trimester, which is a lot of, you know, what we're seeing. Also, how about just like life skills right. and providing uh, a woman who does decide to, because this is a big decision to have a child, right. to provide this child-bearing woman to be able to to mentally be able to take care of a child. Mm-hmm. And if we're not willing to do all of that. All of it. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> yes. In an equal way for women of color and white women, then Everyone. we have no right taking away someone's bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to make the situation just, you know, perfect for us, mm-hmm. it's all about power and control. Absolutely. And greed. Oh, greed. Greed. Wrapped up in there. <laughs> it's, the, it's the bow that wraps the power and control. <laughs> it, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this has been such a wonderful interview. And I know I thank you so much for your time and your passion and uh, your just honesty and sharing with us today and just your commitment to the cause and to the movements of just equality. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for using your voice so fiercely and so gracefully. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alyssa Milana, for joining us today. We want to hear from you all. So please email us at feminismnow at nlw.org and go to nlw.org to learn more about how you can become involved in our issues. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Topic up.